Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes fils et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Marneau, and today's episode, I'm really excited to have Patrick Lacroix with us. Uh, Patrick is born in Canada. He's got a PhD in history from the University of New Hampshire. Currently teaches at Phillips Exeter, which is obviously a tremendous school. He also is the person behind a really, really interesting uh, website you guys got to check out. It's called QueryThePast.com. If you have any interest at all in the subject matter that we talk about here on the French Canadian Legacy Podcast, that is absolutely a site that you got to add to your favorites. You got to make sure to check out. He always posts super, super interesting stuff. So we are very excited to have Patrick with us. Patrick, thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. And thank you for the plug. That's absolutely very nice of you. You got well. It's well deserved because it's awesome. I check it out every time. If something new gets updated there, I'm definitely checking that out. Where are you from, sir? I'm from a little place called Cowansville, and not uh, Cowansville, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's the only other Cowansville <laughs> there is on uh, the face of the earth. No, uh, it's a little Cowansville in southern Quebec. Uh, and my hometown is, I'd say, about a 20-minute drive from Vermont. So really. Not too far from this great American republic and not too far from Montreal either. There you go. So that's why I think oh, I thought that was kind of important because you bring a definitely a unique perspective of somebody who grew up in Quebec, you know, attended school in Quebec. Uh, definitely a perspective that's very different than most of the people we're going to be talking to on this podcast. So I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, now, how did you end up? As we mentioned you got a PhD from the University of New Hampshire. How do you end up in New Hampshire? Yeah, gosh, well, and you and I have discussed this a little bit. I really, I love history. I'm passionate about history, as hopefully will come through here. You know, there are great opportunities to study history up in Canada, but essentially the University of New Hampshire offered me a deal that I couldn't turn down. So <laughs> I came down here like so many French Canadians before me, not necessarily motivated by, you know, the almighty dollar, but... Um, certainly, you know, the opportunity to make new connections, uh, live in a different place, experience part of that, you know, a different land, a different culture, a different experience, sure. um, all really were alluring, as well as being able to study in comfort at UNH, and I really enjoyed my, my time there. Um, I was at UNH for five years, and then I transitioned to, to Phillips uh, down in Exeter, so it's been a lovely time. We talked about the QueryThePast.com site. What made you decide to get that going? Gosh, well, there. Are, I mean, increasingly, there are so many great resources online and, you know, in physical form on Franco-American history. And I just got really interested in the subject while I was at UNH and started writing, researching, publishing in the field. Um, and it's really been a great privilege to be able to share my findings in a lot of academic journals. But the fact is, you know, I love speaking with academics, I love sharing with them, trading ideas, trading research tips. But um, this is a story that belongs to a much larger community. It's partly, but only partly, my story. Uh, it's your story. It's my story. It's a lot of other people's story. And I want to be able to enrich that. And so the more people who visit the website, the better. I know there are a lot of great other blogs and websites out there so there's a lot of information that's circulating but i figured that you know one more voice 
might not hurt and might help us enrich that conversation with pardon, with a little bit more history and research. I wanted Patrick on because I want to talk a little bit about kind of like the history, what was going on in Quebec prior to a lot of the immigrants coming in to the United States and into New England, kind of what the reality was on the ground in Quebec at the time. And Patrick's an awesome guy to talk to about that. So I think the first thing we got to chat about is where does this story begin? It's an interesting, I guess, problem we have. What is the, the start of a, the Franco-American tale? There have been people speaking French in what is today the United States before, well before there was the United States. Yeah, no kidding. That's, I mean, you're spot on. That's the big debate among scholars, among people who study this. It's very, um, I would call the conventional story starts around 1860, as it's usually told. But as you point out very accurately, we can go way further in time um, and go as far back as a colonial period. We can, and I'll offer a few examples here of where we might consider starting this story before moving on to maybe what is, again, the conventional story. So we might think, for instance, of the French Huguenots, these French Protestant dissenters who are essentially expelled, who are no longer welcome in France in the late 17th century. Many of them find their way to the Dutch Low Countries, to London, to other places around the Dutch or English empires at the time. And they end up in Boston and Philadelphia and um, certainly New York City as well. So that's one example. We could go as far back as to talk about the Huguenots. Uh, I might also mention that the French settlers in what was at the time New France are also part of the story. They start settling around the Great Lakes, around the Mississippi River Basin, and of course as far down as Louisiana in the late 17th century and early 18th century. So again, we can enter on what would eventually become American soil way before, as you point out, there's even such a thing as the United States of America. So those are a few examples, and I might just add a few more as well while we're on the subject. There are a few hundred French Canadians who take part in the Revolutionary War, who support all these somewhat celebrated congressional delegates and military leaders like Washington, and they take part in that revolutionary struggle, and ultimately many end up in what is today upstate New York. Again, 17th, 18th centuries, this story has already really begun. Now, whether we should consider these really Franco-Americans is entirely open to debate, and that's something that <laughs> probably a podcast on its own for sure. Yeah, exactly. So that goes to the larger point about what is a Franco-American, which I know is really at the heart of this podcast in the first place. Oh, absolutely. So, but you're right. So we have this backstory. There's people speaking French. There's people with French heritage in what is again today the United States for a really long time. Now we get to that conventional time period, or right before, we are talking about the 1840s. The reality was for the people living in what is today Quebec at that point. Right, so I would mention in passing that there's another really important event that all Quebec school kids learn about. It's really one of those momentous occasions uh, that we have to halt on and study in school, and that's the Patriot Rebellion right. in the late 1830s. So that's another political event that's going to bring a lot of people, and I say a lot, it's really, we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands if you count those who leave Upper Canada at the time. This is another momentous event. There's a presumption that there might have been a chain migration effect 
occurring because of the expatriates, the exiles who leave the country, who are no longer welcome because of their political values, who essentially escape the province or what is then the colony of Lower Canada in the late 1830s. But I make this case and I share this example partly to contrast it to some of the more structural economic factors that will have a much more long-term and meaningful impact on the migration of French Canadians to the U.S. And so you asked about some of the factors that really are driving this migration and they'll sustain it for the better part of a century. And I think that that movement of people, even though there's an increasing body of research that suggests that it really starts in the 1820s and 1830s with poor agricultural conditions in what is today Quebec, really the heart of what is La Grande Seigne, the Great Hemorrhage, uh, takes root in the 1840s. And so I want to explain a little bit and share with your, your audience some of the factors and some of the theories that drive this migration. Among those theories, as far back as the 1830s and 40s, people are debating whether, whether maybe French Canadians are employing antiquated, primitive, uh, maladapted agricultural techniques. Interesting. And that's that's a view that's really pervaded, as you might suspect, by English Canadians, by <laughs> British settlers, by Americans who visit and who have, have a lot of trouble relating to the experience that these families are facing in rural Quebec. And that's their way of explaining some of the difficult circumstances that French Canadians are facing. But there are other more important layers to this story. Uh, that go even further in explaining why so many people, hundreds of thousands, leave the, the quote-unquote homeland over the course of that century. One of those factors is simply the population boom and the extent to which Quebec is you know, limited by climate, by the soils, by vegetation, and there are only so many spaces in what is now the province of Quebec that can be occupied and made to be arable land. So that's another part of the story that goes a little bit further beyond the idea of just primitive techniques and shows that part of the story is really about ethnic bias, the first part that I shared. Yeah, and do you mind if I jump in with a follow-up real quick? Oh, of course, please, anytime. Yeah. No, awesome, thank you. I'm just curious, because you talked about primitive agricultural techniques. Was the agriculture being practiced in Quebec at the time drastically different? It was being practiced in you know, English North America? Were their techniques different than the English speakers were using, say, on this side of the border, part of the so, issue? Uh, I would say that the disparity between the common farmer, whether French or English Canadian at the time, and these are you know later terms that I'm using, sure. to distinguish them, are not substantially different. But there are key differences. Um, and it seems as though English-speaking farmers who might at that time have considered themselves to be British more than, than English Canadian, right, right. are are using fertilizers to a far greater extent. Gotcha. They're rotating their crops in a different way. Many of them have the opportunity to experiment a little bit more than large French Canadian families who only have so much land. There's only, in many of these areas, they're surrounded by other farms. They can't really expand. That has a tremendous pressure on how much they can experiment. Gotcha. There are there are all these great new agronomic scientific theories about what can make agriculture so much more productive. But for somebody who's never practiced that type of agriculture, who needs to increase the yields, there might not be a strong incentive, especially if it means they might have 
smaller crops in the short term. And sure. the other thing that might distinguish English and French Canadian farmers of the time is land tenure. So French Canada is still to a great extent under uh, the seigneurial system, whereas a lot of English Canadians who are coming in, by which I mean either British settlers or Americans who are moving north to acquire uh, cheap land, they're settling in areas that have free and common sockage, which is a fancy word to say that they can buy land outright and not have to deal with seigneurial dues and seigneurial obligations. So that too goes into the making of this misperception of how uh, apparently primitive and archaic these French Canadian farmers are. I got you. And uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about uh, what the seigneurial system was even, because I think that might be something that's not really known to, to many New Englanders now. But. There's this huge debate among scholars that um, somewhat erupted online last year, and I encourage people to Google it, <laughs> it's the whole question of whether there was a seigneurial, seigneurial system per se. There were all sorts of different applications of the idea that you hold your land from somebody else, which is really a system descended from medieval times where somebody will be granted a plot of land and in return they will have certain obligations to the lord of the manor. Now, by the 19th century, this system is kind of breaking down, partly because it becomes a lot more sensical in this new increasingly commercial, eventually industrial economy to simply monetize ex exchange. So sure. that it becomes really just like paying rent instead of having physical obligations to maintain a mill or have your wood sewn or sawn at a lumber mill that's owned by the Lord of the Manor or repairing roads yourself instead of relying on somebody who's paid for that service. So this is a system that's also being transformed in the period we're talking about in the 1820s through the 1850s when officially the system is abolished. Am I correct in assuming then that most of these farmers that we're talking about, even though they lived, worked their entire lives on these farms, they were not actually the ones who owned these farms. Is that correct? In some cases, that's right. Although these relationships are oftentimes multi-generational. I won't pretend to be an expert on the seigneurial system sure. by any means. Many do have that security of being able to keep their plot of land generation after generation. And over time, that seigneurial obligation becomes a bit of a formality, if you want. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. We can go back to where we, just talked, we left off talking about the population boom a little bit. And the other factors that were kind of changing around the, you know, the, after that 1837 rebellion time. So there are a few other theories that I mentioned really quickly in passing, and I don't want to overwhelm, overwhelm anyone with, you know, academic debates. No, but, I think it's, sir, I think it's awesome to note that there is an agreement on this. It's something yeah, you pointed out before. There was an agreement then. There's no agreement now. <laughs> no kidding. Exactly. Um, you know, and that's the story of, of Quebec, really. <laughs> but I digress. I'd say the other big story that's come out really in recent years is uh, a case that Leslie Choquette, who's a um, scholar at Assumption College down in Worcester, makes in some of her in some of her work, and she argues that really what changes in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s is, and even later, is that agriculture is becoming increasingly commercialized, so that it makes a lot less sense for somebody to simply go along with the old style of subsistence agriculture. Increasingly, you have to compete with other producers in an increasingly international market. And just as the Midwest is being open, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and further west, 
you have all these crops that are being shipped east and there's competition internationally for, for crops. And so it becomes a lot more profitable for people who have a little bit more money in their pocket to start consolidating and turning instead of relying on the shared product of the farm is to go with a commercial product. So to go entirely with corn, entirely, entirely with potatoes or entirely with dairy in order to make a living and have those more valuable crops be sold. So those that process of consolidation of forming larger and larger, larger farms that are really dependent on monocultures is happening as well at the time. And, and it's all that what forces the transition in terms of moving from one crop to the next is something that's rather ecological. And that has a lot to do with the wheat midge, which is a bit of a parasite. The hessian fly, also a bit of a parasite that decimate wheat crops. Uh, there are potato crop failures in the 1840s. And although all of these one-time events or short-term events kind of die off and recede into the background after the 1840s, the movement is really launched. And so the process of chain migration, of encouraging people to go abroad and seek out new opportunities has begun. And as people return and go back and forth between New England, New York State, Canada, and back, uh, they'll find that, you know, the word spreads and they see that there are a lot of opportunities, a lot of pull factors to the U.S. A lot, we've been talking a lot about agriculture then. Was it mainly agriculture driven? The push factors getting people to leave? Or were there maybe non-agriculture factors that may have factored into the equation as to why people might have wanted to leave Quebec? Right. So I would say first and foremost that the vast bulk of the population in what was lower Canada is primarily agricultural or sure. directly uh, reliant on agriculture. But you're right, there are other factors. And in the 1840s, just because of changing colonial economic policies, which are largely dictated in London, in England, for instance, the lumber industry changes. Suddenly, Canadian uh, lumber producers now have to face competition because of lower tariffs from abroad, from the United States notably, but other suppliers. And so that really hurts the lumber industry in Canada. And a lot of the men who were traditionally finding off-season labor by going, or labor, by going to lumber camps, say in sure. the wintertime, can no longer do so. Uh, the entire state of the lumber industry is depressed. And that has a chain reaction, a chain effect on the seaports in Montreal, Quebec City, uh, that are prime shipping locations sure. for lumber. And there are all sorts of derivative trades that rely on lumber. So that's one example where a lot of that off-season labor now needs to look somewhere else to complement whatever income they might get from the farm. So they'll increasingly look to lumber camps south of the border, but also part-time work in places as varied as Burlington, Vermont, on the docks or in the industries there, as far as Woonsocket and all across Maine. And this is happening in the 1840s and 1850s. Okay, now we, we're starting to get into, we've talked a lot about you know, the push factors perhaps, and you started to transition into the pull factors. Why? What is appealing about making the transition uh, into what is today the United States for a lot of these mainly agricultural workers? But as you mentioned, there are other populations as well. Just as the Canadas, Lower and Upper Canada, are facing rebellion in, in 1837, uh, the U.S. is facing some challenges of its own, and that comes in the form of the Panic of 1837. So for a few years, starting in 1837, the economy 
in the U.S. will be really depressed. It's one of the first major nationwide uh, depressions, or at least a very long-lasting recession. So that's going to delay whatever chain effect the rebellions might have had on out-migration. But starting in the 1840s, the American economy is really recovering, and it will be in overdrive for the better part of two decades, until largely 1856, 57, 58. And during that time, you have an industrial boom. The Lowell mills are already running, and they keep running and increasingly turning, for instance, to immigrant labor. Sure. So the process of industrialization has begun in the U.S. at a time when really it's at best in its infancy in uh, the British colonies. So that's part of the process. Um, I've mentioned lumber. They're uh, growing canal and railway networks at a time, again, when Canada seems to be behind the ball. And all of this owes to a great extent to the fact that the U.S. is this giant national market, even at this point in time. There's really nothing like it in the Western world, just by virtue of its size, its population, its huge uh, consumer base, and just the wealth of its natural products. And increasingly, the country is able to tap into all that wealth and into this consumer base simply by expanding its commercial um, communication and transportation networks. So again, railways, canals, the Erie Canal is a perfect example. It's a perfect sure. symbol for people's ability to cross the country to easily move from New York City to Albany, to Rochester and Buffalo, and then across to Detroit and even further west to Galena, Illinois and somewhat, some of these other places. So really the country is coming together as a whole in ways that really was not possible, say, in the 1790s. And this will have a snowball effect on all sorts of industries and New England will certainly not be on the margins of that. There are a few places, Vermont, for instance, rural Vermont, some parts of rural New Hampshire and Maine, they'll suffer a little bit as men leave New England to go to the Midwest to buy farms and find other productive activities. But this is great for immigrant French Canadians or potentially immigrant French Canadians who are able to take up um, some of those jobs from people who are leaving. They also take advantage of the huge opportunities provided by industry in the in the Northeast. So really, they're as much, even though they're originally from a British colony, they are physically integrating themselves into that huge national market simply, simply by crossing the border. I'm curious, I mean, why is it? Because you, you mentioned the infrastructure. We talked about the canals, we talked about the railroads. Was it just, a, was it a lack of vision? What, what was it that that did not develop in what is today Quebec? Yeah, so that's a big and, you know, among scholars, a loaded question. So there are precedents in Lower Canada, and that's a result of political battles in the 1820s and 30s. And it's a de decision that's made by the overwhelmingly French-Canadian Canadian Assembly to not finance, and this is an active choice, not finance wow. some of those large infrastructure projects, partly because they're afraid of the huge debt. And they withhold what they call supplies, they withhold expenditures to kind of push the British colonial authorities into a corner and to try to gain leverage for all sorts of democratic reforms. So that's partly why Lower Canada especially is reluctant. The process of building canals and investing in public infrastructure is much more significant in what became Ontario, which is at the time Upper Canada. So there's partly an 
potentially ethnic, but also regional disparity in terms of how Canadians at the time approach, or at least these colonial subjects approach infrastructure projects. And the other big thing is simply the sheer scale of these colonies, the physical challenges of bridging, you know, this area that spans from, at this point in time, really the Detroit-Windsor area, all the way to Halifax, Nova Scotia, across some rocky and mountainous areas. And overcoming those challenges is not easy. And some people will make it their mission in the 1850s, some politicians, to really stimulate the growth of the railway network. But it'll always be kind of catching up, trying to catch up, even as far as the 1880s, catching up with American railway construction. And so the first transcontinental railway in the U.S. is completed four years after the Civil War in 1869. But it takes another 16 years for Canada to be able to do the same. And part of it owes to corruption, part of it owes to geography, and part of it is simply the limits the Canadian financial base can offer, meaning that there's only so much taxation, only so much wealth to be derived from trade that can then be converted into these railway networks. Now, we talked a lot about people leaving. What kind of, What are we talking about ballpark for numbers? What are we dealing with in terms of how many left, what percentage of the total population was? Because this was enormously significant. Right, you're, I mean, you're spot on once again, and this is significant, it's long lasting. There are a few moments when the migratory process fades a little bit, in the 1870s, for instance, when there's a major recession that touches both sides of the border, and again, early in the 20th century. But otherwise, it's really this long-lasting, fairly uh, sustained movement that, as I mentioned earlier, will bring over 900,000, probably approximately a million people, as I mentioned earlier. There are some people who argue, and this is from looking at different sources. Some people argue that the movement is well underway in the 1820s, and that already, at that point in time, 2,000 people are leaving annually. So that's okay. a pretty large proportion sure. of the population of the colony at the time. Around 1840, the population of Lower Canada is about 650,000 people. And so, so a fairly small group of people. And of course, a large majority are French Canadian, uh, but there, we have to take into account Irish and English and American settlers as well. So again, 2,000 people in the 1820s, according to some estimates, is pretty significant. But it really, as I was mentioning earlier, ramps up in the 1840s and 50s. And again, there are some scholars that argue that at this point in time, it's 5,000 people per year. Wow. There's a, this fascinating report that's published uh, in the late 1840s that's produced by uh, a committee appointed by the Assembly of Canada uh, at a time when Lower and Upper Canada are part of the same unit. And so this committee report is really the first to tackle from a policy perspective, the first to really get into the problem when it's first getting noticed at a, I don't want to say national level, but at the level of the entire colony. And so according to the members of this committee, having interviewed a bunch of people across the St. Lawrence River Valley, 20,000 people have left in the last five years. So from 1844 to 1849, 20,000 people. Now they're afraid at this point in time that it's gonna keep going at this point, at the same rate. And it does actually, ultimately. But you can see how losing 
40,000 people over the course of a decade would be a major event at a time when the entire colony, again, is about 650,000 people. So they're really afraid that this is going to decimate the colony, that French Canadians are going to lose their power, their influence within this predominantly English colonial system. They're not entirely wrong, honestly. Uh, but this is going to be major and it's going to keep spiraling. And ultimately, the height of the movement is going to come not in the 1850s or 60s or 70s, but at the end of the 19th century. So in the 1880s and 90s, it really reaches its peak, which tells you something about the extent to which these policymakers up in Canada failed to do anything substantial to halt it, or perhaps were unable, maybe it was unfeasible to stop it. But certainly it went on well after this committee report was published in 1849. Sure. Now, out of curiosity, what did the immigration picture look like at this time? We talk about this period in United States history as a period of immigrants coming in in pretty substantial numbers, obviously not just from, from Quebec, but from all all over the place. Tremendous population growth in the United States at this time. What, what did that picture of the immigration picture look like in Canada around the same period? In terms of people um, perhaps leaving Europe to go to Canada? Correct. Yes. Right. So I think that's a great question, partly because the conversation really turns in the late 1840s. Until the late 1840s, people in Canada aren't worried about people leaving. They're really worried about people coming in. Um, and that's been going on for a few decades. This coincides with the Great Irish Famine of the 1840s. So predominantly the people who are coming to Canada are poor Irish and to a certain extent Scottish and English immigrants who right. are looking to improve their fortunes. And some of them are farmers, some of them are poor laborers, they come from different walks of life. With them they bring new ideas, they're somewhat destabilizing from the perspective of public health. The blame for all sorts of epidemics is laid at their feet in terms of typhus, cholera, a bunch of other epidemics that are sweeping the colony in the 1830s and 40s. But they're also destabilizing because, again, French Canadians are a little bit worried about the preservation of their culture. And there's concern that they might not be able to sustain it if they are, quote unquote, flooded sure. by this mass of English speaking migrants. But that's pretty distinctive because this is really happening within the colonial system. In the U.S., there's this influx of people well outside of the British Empire. So certainly a lot of Irish do end up in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and from there on into the interior of the country. But there are Germans, there are French people, there are people coming in increasingly, even after the Mexican War from what is today Latin America, from Mexico itself, from Spain. And what I've noticed notably by looking at the enlistment records from the Mexican War is that there are Canadians in there, but also every potential principality and country and kingdom in Europe is represented. So already in 1840s, the country is increasingly, meaning the U.S. is increasingly looking, I really don't want to say a multicultural experiment, but it is certainly pluri-ethnic and there are right. a lot of different religions and ethnicities and uh, national groups mingling together. So it's becoming far more diverse with a uniquely, I would say, American population than uh, Canada is facing at the time. Okay, so now we have all these people leaving Canada, especially the ones early on. Where are they headed? So that's really tricky because, and I'll just uh, share with this, uh, share this methodological problem with your audience, is that until 1850, 
these U.S. federal censuses that occur every 10 years don't list the place of birth. So that's really difficult in terms of tracing people. Sometimes you'll encounter in census records somebody who has a French-sounding name. Right. But then again, somebody who's called Frank Cross might just be Frank Cross. It might not be François Lacroix. So it's hard <laughs> that's to tell. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really tricky based on anecdotal evidence and evidence from enlistment records. I've been using Mexican War enlistment records to trace some of these people, as well as the 1850 census. We have a sense of where they end up. And we have a sense already in 1845 that they're all across New England. So I'll offer a few examples. Sure. Um, many of your audience members have probably read Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Sure. So in Walden, Henry David Thoreau notably talks of his encounter with this French-Canadian woodchopper, not too far from Walden Pond. So this guy is in Walden, uh, not too far from Waltham and a few other places in Massachusetts, in 1845. We have evidence of people being in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and some other Rhode Island communities, maybe as far back as the 1830s, really. But the mid-1840s is where it seems to be turning, and I can't resist uh, the opportunity to to share with your your audience members this great documentary film that was made uh, I think last year a few years ago by Tanya Chavanel called The Home Road in which Tanya the director Tanya's father recreates the journey of his ancestor who walked from the eastern townships of Quebec all the way to Biddeford, Maine. Wow. Uh, it's really a great film that tells you something of the challenges that awaited people who were traveling across the wilderness, really, from the eastern townships to Biddeford, Maine, on foot. That was a journey of really weeks. And that's a picture worth worth seeing, I would say. No, absolutely. We'll definitely put a link to that on our social media. Sounds great. And so there are a few other cases. Um, most of the people I encounter in my research, uh, as far as the 1840s are concerned, are in Vermont. And until the gotcha. Civil War, Vermont is really the prime destination for French Canadians, although a lot will increasingly go to Aroostook County in northern Maine. Um, they end up in Biddeford, central Maine, where there are lumber camps. So very slowly they're trickling down and they're finding uh, opportunities, oftentimes just as ordinary laborers to supplement income from a farm. Or sometimes it's a way of earning a little bit of cash for young men before they get married, before they settle down, before they have enough to buy land and support a family. So I would say, you know, if you're drawing this mental map in your minds, think about northern Maine, a few other pockets in Maine, northeastern Vermont. I would be remiss not mentioning New York. So oftentimes we talk about <laughs> Franco-Americans sure. of New England and New York kind of uh, gets left out. But really upstate New York, Clinton County is one of those prime destinations, Essex County. So all along Lake Champlain and until the railway really becomes the main artery for communicating between places, for moving between places. It's really waterways that decide what the migration fields will be. And so a lot of people are simply following canals and steamboats down the Richelieu River, or I should say up the Richelieu River, yeah. to Lake Champlain, the St. John River uh, in northern Maine, and a few of these other major um, inland routes, which are really just rivers. Those are the main roads at the time. And that's partly where all these major textile mills will also pop up later on. That's interesting. Now, you read stories about immigrants coming from 
you know, what is today Quebec, coming to the United States and maybe not staying forever, or at least not intending to stay forever, and then heading back. Do we see a lot of that early on? Part of the challenge of determining how many there were at any given moment is that this is a population that's in constant flux in migratory terms. So they're going up and down, and sometimes it's on a seasonal basis. Sometimes they'll hear of an opportunity through a family member and earn cash for a short amount of time before going back up north, and sometimes vice versa, actually. So Interesting. It's, it's absolutely true, and it's hard to pin them down. And you might find a family in the 1850 census of northern Vermont and then find them in Canada in the 1852 census. Sure. So people are moving around and, you know, it's so easy for us in the 21st century to wonder how they got around and how information traveled. And it's so easy to depict our ancestors as being, I don't want to say primitive, but archaic in a sense. And to imagine the world in much simpler terms than it actually was. But there was a lot of communication. And every day in the newspaper, in multiple places around what is today the province of Quebec, you'd have news items from the U.S. And in New England, you'd have news items from the British Empire in Canada. So news traveled fairly fast. And from the moment that a cross-border railway line is completed in 1853, really that just expedites the entire process. And it's blown beyond all prior proportions. And from that point on, people travel with an ease that would have been, well, that was certainly unheard of until a few years earlier. So you're right in saying that this is a population that is seen as transient. In some cases, they are. Sometimes it's the outsider's perspective of French Canadians being more mobile than they actually were. But no doubt in the early decades of this great migration from Quebec to the U.S. Northeast, the population is immensely mobile. And you can't blame them when things aren't going too well on the farm and there are so many other opportunities through which they might acquire money. Why not? Now, one of the things, I mean, growing up in Manchester, hearing about Little Canada, that's a term that I was familiar with for a while. When do we start seeing Little Canadas? That's such a great question. And part of the challenge is determining exactly what qualifies Sure. I would say just to offer a few hints of how we might approach a problem. Usually we associate that little Canada with a French national parish. Right. So at this point in time, a church where obviously the great bulk of the service of the rituals will be in Latin, but the homily will be in French. Uh, People will be able to confess in French. The French priest of that parish or French speaking priest of that parish will be able to take part in the cultural and social activities of the community. So it's really this back and forth in which the church is really the anchor of this expatriated community. So the church is a key element. Usually we associate at least a few French owned businesses with Little Canada. It might be a butcher shop, a corner store, or something along those lines. Increasingly in time, we'll have newspapers. French language newspapers popping up all across New England. And so many of them are really short lived and people really struggle to, you know, get the right number of advertisers and get (laughs) subscribers and all that stuff. And they try and they keep trying. And so many of these are short lived, but some will have a really long life that will last into the 1960s and early 1970s. So that's another key ingredient to the little Canada. I would add cultural associations, fraternal associations, uh, mutual benefit societies. And I'm thinking notably of the Société Saint-Jean-Baptiste, 
Sure. So St. John the Baptist Societies, which are a bit of a mutual benefit society, and some of them provide insurance services, life insurance, and it's just usually they'll have their own club, and it's just a great way of, you know, forming community around a shared identity. And most of them will indeed have a cultural mission as well as, you know, providing a few financial benefits here and there. So all of, all of those things are really part of the little Canada. And if I had to give you, you know, any specific here, yeah, it would be the one that comes up right after that famous report of 1849. In 1850, two important events take place and they seem fairly innocuous at the time but they are really important precedents for what's gonna come over the course of the next century. One is the foundation of the first official French national parish, or perhaps we can call it the French Canadian national parish in New England, and that happens in Burlington. And perhaps not surprisingly, right? It's right along Lake Champlain, it's near the border, and there are the Winooski mills, right next door, textile mills. So increasingly that center is gonna attract an increasing number of people, it's going to be tied by the railway to Montreal and some of these major cities in Quebec. And so that's where you have this first initial initial bubble of population that will justify the creation of a distinct parish, distinct Catholic services, distinct Catholic institutions for French Canadians on U.S. soil. The other momentous event that occurs in 1850 is the creation of a Société Saint-Jean-Baptiste not in Biddeford, not in Burlington, not in Berlin, New Hampshire, but in New York City of all places, <laughs> right? So our first, you know, our first expatriates, again, they travel far and they're not afraid of taking chances, of taking risks, they're adventurers, and I don't want to diminish the very difficult circumstances sometimes they face economically, but they take risks and some of these people who are at least doing well enough in New York City, are able to form this first Société Saint-Jean-Baptiste. And many of those that will be then created on Canadian soil are really inspired to do so. And we know that these Sociétés become really popular for a time in Quebec and they have, you know, major branches in Montreal and Quebec City. They're inspired by what's happening not on Canadian soil, but in the U.S. They're inspired by the dedication that some of these migrants have towards their faith, their customs, their language, their culture as a whole. Uh, so it'll have reverberations north of the border, but it'll also inspire other people in the burgeoning little Canadas of New England to form their own uh, mutual benefit societies, cultural associations, to start forming communities in a more institutional sense. Now, obviously we have this great migration happening. We're talking about the report in 1849, obviously people are starting to recognize in Quebec that this is potentially a problem. What steps, if any, I guess, do the leaders of Lower Canada take in order to try to put a halt to this crazy migration? Gosh, that, you know, I really want to offer a comprehensive answer, but there's very little to speak about, honestly. Um, in terms of measures that are enacted, it's really not until the 1870s that there's a cohesive colonization policy in place. Colonization here meaning colonizing or settling the outward regions of the province of Quebec, those that are in the hinterlands. So not so much the eastern townships, which already have a basin of population at that point in time that's to a great extent English speaking, but 
going further towards the Gaspésie region, the Saguenay, the Ottawa River Valley, uh, the Laurentians as well. So there's this push after the U.S. Civil War when there are really dramatic events happening in Quebec, when the migration is picking up again, when people are being asked, instead of leaving, to move to these outward parts of the province and on the margins. And very few people proportionally, proportionally to the entire migration, will choose to do so. Very few will choose to return due to all these incentives to Quebec. Now, in the 1840s and 50s, there is no sustained colonization policy. And there are all these great reports that are published almost on a decennial basis. There's another uh, great report in 1857. Shortly after Confederation in 1867, the uh, provincial government tries to enact new policies. But really, these are reports that reiterate the problem over and over again. And you can almost see how they model their own report on the one from the decade prior. It's absolutely <laughs> That's pretty useful then, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Talk about making the most of your taxpayer dollars, right? <laughs> so it's really, and part of it is simply the resistance of people who have a lot of land, large landholders, who are unwilling to divide things up, who might have bought at a premium a huge expanse of land that's still primarily forested, and that's a result of speculation, and they might sell it off at some point, or they might let people settle on that plot of land in exchange for their lumber. So they might take the, the lumber, seize all the lumber from a certain person's farm, and prevent them from earning income from selling that lumber themselves as tenants. So there are all sorts of dubious practices going on like that that are really attacked, and some of these are made into bills, and there's an attempt to build more roads, to build more canals, to help people move to these outward regions. But really, once again, very little is enacted until the 1870s. And even then, very little comes of these policies. And you might wonder, well, why is that? Why aren't people not willing to stay home, in a sense, insofar as these outward regions are home? Sure. And there are a few factors behind that. Part of it is that they're getting into the game way too late. Already in the 1840s, that chain migration of people going to the U.S., coming back, sharing news, telling people of the great opportunities they've found, finding new opportunities, and possibly earning enough money to buy a farm either in the U.S. or Canada, is underway. This is all happening already. And even by 1849, some people might be so bold as to say that it's kind of too late. But that's, again, a fairly bold proposition, and there are other factors that explain it, and part of it is, again, the climate, the vegetation, the geography of these outer parts of Quebec. Once you start getting outside of the St. Lawrence River Valley, you know, in some places, you're really tilling rocks. When we compare that to, you know, working on the docks in Burlington or being able to chop wood, you know, not too far from Lowell, Massachusetts or some of these other places, suddenly the cost-benefit analysis really weighs in favor of the U.S. And why not? If you can move to an American city where there's a French-language press, where there's a French-Canadian ethnic church, where there's a mutual benefit society, where there's a music hall, where you can see all of your friends play, you know, this is basically like being in Quebec. There's a point at which there's very little difference and people can spend their the bulk of their lives speaking French and working and playing the way they did back in Quebec 
only on American soil. We're going to have to wind it down, Patrick. You've taken us from the beginning of anybody living in North America all the way through. <laughs> we're talking about the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and now we're leaving off with kind of where I think the story really gets exciting, where we start to see the immigrants and kind of follow what their lives are like once they get here. So basically what it comes down to is we're going to have to have you back. We're going to have to continue this chat at some time for sure. Well, gosh, I appreciate it. And there's so many, you know, I've been talking in very broad terms here, but there's so many fascinating stories, so many fascinating characters that I'd love to share with you and your audience. So I'd love to be back and uh, and I'll be glad to tune in as well. I know you have a lot of other great guests uh, lined up, so it's going to be a pleasure. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Now that we have that uh, recorded, I'm going to hold you to it as well, now that you're promising to come back. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you very great. much. Again, everybody, check out QueryThePast.com. A lot of the stuff we had just talked about right now, you can find the different articles there. He posts stuff all the time. It's an excellent uh, resource for anybody that has interest um, in our history. So Patrick Lacroix, an awesome guest. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks again. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.